0: Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Hey, it's Latif from Radiolab. Our goal with each
1: episode is to make you think, how did I live this long and not know that? Radiolab. Adventures on the edge of what we think we know. Listen wherever you get podcasts.
2: This is the New Yorker Radio Hour, a co-production of WNYC Studios and The New Yorker.
1: Welcome to the New Yorker Radio Hour. I'm David Remnick. In 1986, I went to see Shoah, Claude Lanzmann's film about the Holocaust. And to this day, I'm pretty certain that it's not only a masterwork, but the greatest achievement in documentary film. Lonsman got remarkable interviews an SS officer who was at Treblinka, a barber at the same camp, a Polish railway worker who, under duress, helped drive the locomotive pulling boxcars filled with Jews to the death camps. And then there was Rudolf Verba. Verba was sent to Auschwitz when he was just 17 years old. And when he appears in the documentary show, Verba is still in middle age. He's immensely alive. He's handsome, oddly cheerful and absolutely unwilling to talk in cliché. He told a story with startling clarity, how despite the odds, he had decided to escape and tell the world of the horrors of Auschwitz. This astonishing story is told in a new biography by the British journalist Jonathan Friedland. Its title is The Escape Artist, and I spoke with Friedland at the Museum of Jewish Heritage in New York. I'd like to know, to begin, how you found your story and why you found it to be so essential
0: that you were going to give all your time to it for a while. The answer comes almost in two parts about when did it come to me as a subject. On one level, it came to me age 19, which is relevant because the man we're talking about is Rudolf Werber, and he escaped from Auschwitz when he was 19. I was 19, and I was in a room like this one, a darkened auditorium, a movie theater in London, to see the film Shoah, Claude Landsman's epic nine and a half hour film about the Shoah. And then suddenly, onto the screen explodes this figure who is utterly unlike all the others. He is charismatic, he is handsome, he's wearing this tan leather coat. He could be Al Pacino in Scarface. I mean, he exudes charisma. And immediately in the cinema, I sort of looked up and, who's that? You know, I want to know more about him. And almost as an aside, Landsman just mentions that this man escaped from Auschwitz. And even though I was 19, I was old enough to know then that Jews just didn't escape from Auschwitz.
2: It was my intention to escape from the first moment when I have seen where I am. But at that time, it was particularly urgent because I knew that all was prepared for the murder of one million Jews from Hungary. And because it was close to Slovakia, I thought that it would be possible to give the warning. And uh, naturally I was interested in surviving myself. I then left the cinema, age 19, transfixed
0: by this figure and never forgot him, never forgot his name, never forgot the story. And then around 2016, I would say, and then certainly afterwards, new words started entering the language. People were talking about post-truth and they were talking about fake news. And I found myself going back to the story of Rudolf Werber because he was somebody who had taken the biggest risk imaginable to take in escaping from Auschwitz, very deliberately to tell the world. In other words, to get the truth out from under a mountain of lies.
1: This is the essence of the story that somebody 19 years old... Conceives the, the idea that if only people would know, if only the Jews of this country or that particular we'll get to it in a second, but Hungary and specifically would have known, they would have done what? They would have escaped, they may not have they might have rebelled. They something. He he can't quite articulate it, but they something would have happened if if Jews were to know, if the yeah.
0: world were to know. Well, this is what is so extraordinary about the story, because He was only a teenager. He arrives at age 17. He's there working on this railway platform, the Alta Juden ramp, the old Jew ramp. His job, he's he's bounced around different jobs as a slave, as a a prisoner. But he has this job unloading the transports. And he comes to this huge and important realization, which is, it seems so simple, but none of them know. He realizes that every person getting off that train has no idea... Where the, of the meaning of the place they've been brought to. Many of them are relieved to be in Auschwitz because they believe these elaborate lies that Jews are told at every stage of the journey, including that they are, the, uh, the big lie is that they are being deported to the East to be resettled and to have new lives. Tell, tell me a little bit about Rudolf as a, as
1: a person, as he, as he comes to Auschwitz. Is he a worker? Is he an intellectual? Is he a pre-professional? What, would he, what was his life going to be? What did it seem to be headed toward? Well, he,
0: he arrives as a 17-year-old, as I say, from provincial Slovakia. He'd been at school, actually in the capital. He'd been uh, at one of the elite schools in Bratislava until the day where he turned up for the academic year 1938-39 and was told there's no place for you here because you're a Jew. Very movingly, there are Classroom photos of him. You can see for the year 35 36, he's there. 36, 37, he's there. Then he's not. He's not there. He had been exceptionally bright. He had a gift, particularly for languages. So by the time age 17 he gets to Auschwitz, he speaks obviously Czech and Slovak, but also German, Russian, Hungarian, teaching himself some English. This was interesting to me. Why does he get such a privileged
1: position? because that's what he had by the inside by, the camp yes he was given a an opportunity not, not only to survive and have a life however const- unbelievably constricted but a life with these other i hate to use the word privilege but yes. you know privilege so by are, survival one,
0: one of the revelations of the whole process of of researching this for me and i consider myself somebody quite well read in in the the story of the Holocaust story in Auschwitz, I think there are things about it that people think they know, but they don't know. And one of them is, well, for example, that there was a permanent Jewish bureaucracy inside Auschwitz. I mean, I didn't know that. There was two or 300 people who were used as registrars and bureaucrats and pen pushers and so on. Right. And there was also a resistance, an underground in Auschwitz after a fashion. And the two are linked because it was because he had been spotted as a talent by the Auschwitz underground, explain, that they arranged ex- the Explain imagery. the
1: map of that. The, in other words, who are the kapos? What is the underground? What is going on there that, um, you know, we're not normally hearing about or not yeah. normally see?
0: Well, so obviously the people who police the camp at the highest level are the SS. It's their camp. They are the ones who are in total charge. Then they have as henchmen these prisoners, Green Triangle prisoners very often, who were petty or not-so-petty hardened criminals, often, uh, German or Austrian, who would be used as their enforcers. So they would... Although Nazis had semi-automatic weapons, they would have clubs and sticks, and they were brutal people. They would impose order at a day-to-day level. Mm -hmm. And slowly, over time, the Green Triangle brutish capos are sidelined, and the jobs of sort of pen pushers and registrars are taken by the resistance and the underground. What were the ambitions
1: of the underground?
0: Well, they're mainly in the business, he he concludes, of improving their own life and conditions in the camp. And their concern is not to halt the death machine, but to get life to be a less brutal in the camp. That penny drops for Rudolf Werber, and he begins to think the underground, good people though they are, are actually enabling what we would come to call the Holocaust.
2: And it was quite clear to me then that the... resistance in the camp is not geared for an uprising, but for survival, for the survivors of the members of the resistance movement. I uh, then decided to act what was called by the members of resistance as anarchic and individualistic activity, like an escape and leaving the community for which I'm co-responsible by that time. And so
0: he begins. He comes to that crucial realization, which is the only way this machine is going to be stopped, this death machine, is if somebody gets the word out, because the thing that is enabling it, above all, is the ignorance of the victims. They're arriving here with no clue, and therefore they are getting on those trains in the first place, and they are lining up in orderly fashion. I should say, because I think you asked this earlier, what does he think they're going to do? He has no illusions. He doesn't think the Jews are going to stage an armed revolt. They have no weapons. They often include children, the sick, the elderly. He doesn't have some mad fantasy about a kind of armed resistance. All he thinks is if they know, they might at the very least panic. Even that would be something. If If there is chaos on the platform, if there's a stampede, if some run off that direction, some run off the other direction.
2: The Germans were so sure that no resistance is possible that they became cocky. I mean, it wasn't so difficult to hit back. They would have been probably very surprised if if there would be a resistance. But even if there wouldn't be a resistance, but only a panic, you see, it is a big difference to slaughter pigs or to hunt deer. If you have to hunt each one separately, hunt him down. It never goes so fast.
0: His view was that the Nazis wanted the Jews effectively to be sheep that you could organize in a column. Whereas if they knew, they might run off in different directions and then it would be like hunting deer where you'd have to pick off one after another with a gun. And that would be tight. Ty- they would do it. And chaotic. But it would be chaotic. And then who knows, if there were, that transport was chaos, then the one behind would be delayed. And then word would, the, you would throw sand in the gears of the Nazi machine. So, Jonathan, he finds a friend, he finds a, a
1: comrade in this, in this incredibly improbable plan. Tell me about the friend and how they conceived this plan to escape Auschwitz. How do they think they're going to do this? Because the map of Auschwitz, as we've seen in countless
0: books, just seems I- impossible to penetrate. You're right. He always knew he would have to have an escape partner. You couldn't possibly do it alone and why is that that's interesting why is that the the physical business of escaping just the i mean you would need two pairs of hands often just to get through a you know if you're going to under a fence but i think the other thing is that you would have if for a due to escape auschwitz you would be aware that you would have nobody on the outside to help you there were escapes from Auschwitz before. Soviet prisoners of war escaped. The b- biggest group was Polish political prisoners. They escaped in scores of them. In the so- Soviet prisoners of war, dozens. Jews, basically none. The difference being what? Well, the, the, the others had support on the outside. That the, If you were a Pole and you escaped, there was a Polish resistance that was set up but the Jews were basically cut off from the rest of of the world. So it was harder. And I think it's not a coincidence. His escape partner was someone from the same Slovak town that he was from. Alfred Wetzler was his escape partner, and they had both been in Ternova. And therefore, he, this was somebody who knew, you knew before you'd been in the inverted universe of Auschwitz, where you, could, you never knew if somebody, if good was bad, that black was white, day was night. So they trusted each other. And the key insight they realised was that there was, uh, that they came to, was that there was a, a gap in the Nazi defences the Nazi defences, by the way, again, we should make clear of, of how severe this was. I mean, we're talking about a 12, 15 foot high electrified fence. If you cleared that one, then there was another one. There were two to 3,000 SS men at any time. There were 200 trained hunting dogs that would sniff you out. There were search towers, watch towers every 80 yards.
2: Nazis developed a very ingenious system for checking, say, uh, among 30,000 prisoners, if somebody is missing or not. I mean, within one hour, they would know if somebody is missing and who is missing and uh, his, who are his friends, etc. It was well organized. The key Nazi flaw, in a
0: way, was the, the SS's own predictability. They stuck to their routines,
1: their timing.
0: And they did everything to the same timing. And one thing they did was, if they noticed a prisoner was missing, which they would at roll call, when prisoners would come at the start of the day and at the end of the day, if the same number of prisoners, by the way, dead or alive, did not come back from work at the end of the day, they would then sound a siren and think somebody may have escaped. They would search for that person for three days and three nights, scouring every inch of the camp. And during that time, they would... Maintain the sort of outer perimeter, which was normally taken down at night. They would keep it up so that they could continue the search, the outer ring. But if after three days and three nights there was no sign of those prisoners, they would assume that they had got away and handed over to the Gestapo. And that outer ring would come down at night. And then it would just, they would only be guarding the inner camp where prisoners were kept. So when they hid the out, out for three
1: so days. So the key thing was,
0: their key thought was, if somebody could hide in their outer camp, not be found for three days and three nights, then when that outer ring came down, you would, and you then came out of your hiding place, you would come out into an area that was unguarded and you could effectively walk out of the camp. That was the theory. Again, I think it took an extraordinary mind to see that. That was their theory, and they acted on it. And, you know, the the sheer degree of physical resilience required to hide essentially in a hole in the ground
2: for three days and three nights.
0: There was a part of the camp that was a a construction site. There were piles of timbers, door frames. They realised if you were to dig a hole, really no bigger than a grave, a double grave, under some timbers and hid in there, you could theoretically not be found and you'd have to somehow elude detection from those sniffer dogs. And so they had this ingenious thing that they'd been told by a Soviet prisoner, a Ukrainian actually, that a certain type of cheap Russian tobacco soaked in gasoline and then dried generated a smell that was repellent to the dogs. And so if you sprinkled some of this tobacco around, the dogs would come near and then recoil. And they had heard that, and they did it. That was their first move in the, in this, in the escape. I'm speaking
1: with the journalist Jonathan Friedland about Rudolf Verba, one of the few Jews ever to escape Auschwitz. We'll continue with Verba's astonishing escape in just a moment. This is the New Yorker Radio Hour, with more to come. Hi, I'm Debbie Millman and I host a podcast called Design Matters from the TED Audio Collective. Every episode I have conversations with designers, writers, artists, and other luminaries of contemporary thought. People like Roman Mars, Ai Weiwei, Ethan Hawke, and Ashley Ford. We not only talk about their crafts, but how they design the arc of their lives, what they've learned, what obstacles they've overcome and how they've done it, and how they see the world. Join us for an inquiry into the broader world of creative culture. Find and follow Design Matters with Debbie Millman wherever you're listening to this. This is the New Yorker Radio Hour. I'm David Remnick. I've been speaking today with the British journalist Jonathan Friedland. He writes a column for The Guardian newspaper and he presents a history program on the BBC. He's just written a book called The Escape Artist. I was surprised to learn that it's the only major book written about Rudolf Werbe, who escaped from the Auschwitz concentration camp, one of the very few people ever to do so. And he fled not just to save himself. He'd formed a singular goal of letting the world know what was happening in the death camps. The Nazis did everything they could to prevent knowledge of the mass killings from ever reaching the outside world. And Rudolf Verber had memorized an enormous wealth of information that he wanted to convey to the right people.
2: Well, obviously, to give it a meaning to the two years which I spent in Auschwitz and to escape only for my own sake uh, would be ridiculous.
1: Before the break, author Jonathan Friedland was explaining how Verba and a fellow prisoner, Alfred Wetzler, hid in a hole in an outside portion of the camp for three long days until the search was finally called off. And then they were able to escape.
0: Getting out was the easy part in a way. I mean, of course it wasn't. It was impossible. But after then, there are, in Nazi-occupied Poland, as Rudy wrote in a letter later on in his life, said, with no map, no compass, no friends, they would have to cross marshlands and forests and mountains and rivers. And the date now is what? We're, we're now in 1944. So it's April 1944. The night of their escape, incidentally, not that they had any idea, was the night of the Seder. It was the Festival of Freedom uh, when they were beginning their escape. Something Rudy himself didn't know till 50 years later. Mm. They get out, they make contact with the t- remnant, tiny Jewish community of Slovakia. The, the people who are clinging on, and there in a, in a basement, in hiding, in the Slovak town of Zhilina, outpours this data that they'd been accumulating. I should say something about this, that Rudy had, when he worked on that railway platform, seeing in these transports every night, once he was determined to escape, he then engaged in this extraordinary feat of memory. He memorised every transport that came in. He would count the number of cattle cars, estimate the number of Jews per car, memorize the point of origin, link it up with the numbers, the numbers that would, of course, then be tattooed on the arms of the prisoners who were selected to survive.
1: To such a degree that when he, much, much later, he's at a restaurant and a waiter exposes the tattoo on his own arm, he knows exactly where he is from because he remembers when that, Group of Jews was brought. It had, that's, I
0: mean, one of the. That, that even, knocked me flat. Yeah. It has the same effect on me, that story. It was in the mid 70s, it was a sweltering hot day in this city, in New York City. A uh, waiter comes up with his sleeve rolled up and he said, looks at him and goes, Benzin, May 1943. And the waiter looks at him and says, How did you know?
2: And he said, Because you've got the number there. And I, he had memorized every number. It seems to be difficult today to believe that I could memorize all this, but it was by no means so difficult. We know by now that some people, while they were in prison, memorized whole books and could reproduce them after that. And it was nothing special to memorize statistics which was not figures for me, but behind each transport, there was a picture in my mind, a particular circumstance. And I can say that I saw practically every transport.
1: So they do this report. So the, it, it, yes, and it's it, it it it's they dictate a report essentially.
0: Yeah, thirty
1: odd, thirty-two pages,
0: pages single space. A lawyer, a Slovak lawyer, takes it down in very pair in, in sort of bald, factual, unstylish writing. Is just fact, 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 dates, numbers, names. By the end of it, it is the fullest account ever written at that point of Auschwitz. So m- maybe, Jonathan, that.
1: It's hard to say what's the most outraging part of this book. Auschwitz, of course, itself is is that. But after that, this report gets into the hands of a stunning number of very important people high up in the Catholic Church and in, in Hungary and elsewhere. It essentially reaches Franklin Roosevelt and Alan Dulles. It reaches... Winston Churchill it reaches the Pope the Pope and we should say the biggest goal that Verba has at this point the the greatest goal it in his heart is that the Hungarian Jews is the last group of Jews to not have been scooped up in mass and killed in Auschwitz and other camps and his hope is that first the Jews of Hungarian countryside and later the Jews of Budapest will be saved.
0: Yeah, his, his driving, animating purpose was warn the Jews of Hungary. Let them, the last Jewish community not yet dragged into the Nazi inferno, let them have what we and everyone else
2: didn't have, which is knowledge. Don't forget, compassion, display of compassion was dangerous. And we were not interested at all in compassion. We were interested in what can be done for those people in, and not for pitying them. The report does reach London and Washington. And there it runs into these obstacles.
0: Um, you know, attached to it by now, the Jewish leadership, uh, uh, the Jewish agency in Jerusalem, other Jewish leaders have attached a note to it, effectively pleading for the Allies to bomb the railway tracks. You know, if this is a factory, then take out the conveyor belt that is bringing Jews in. Bomb the railway tracks.
1: I mean, the hero of all... Uh, the liberal community, myself included, Franklin Roosevelt. What did he do about this?
0: So it, it goes all the way up through the bureaucracy, and there's evidence that Roosevelt himself uh, discussed it. He thought, he was reacting to the proposal to bomb the railways. This was a bad business, he thought. Why? And he thought that if American bombs bombed the railway tracks and therefore killed some Jews, then we will be caught up in, meaning associated with, blamed this whole horrid business. This time, in the summer of 1944, 12 to 15,000 Jews were being brought to the camp every day to be murdered. The Jews of Hungary were murdered at a rate um, that had never been matched at any other stage of the war. So even as, as D-Day has already happened and the war is being won, it is the worst hour for the Jews of Europe. Do you, as in, in a sense, do you think that
1: Roosevelt and Churchill are culpable?
0: Uh, it's, it's a hard question to ask. And in a way, I'm going to hide behind Ferber himself and his view when he was asked about this kind of thing. The crucial thing about him, I think, as a witness was that he would resist the narrative I think a lot of people want for the, for the Second World War and for the Holocaust, which is there are villains, the Nazis, and everyone else... <laughs> Is on he- the side of good. Heroic. Heroic, noble. The, the, the argument that Roosevelt and Churchill made was we cannot do anything that diverts from the war effort. Our first, the, the best thing we can do for the Jews is to defeat Nazism. And look, as a Jew, you've got to say, thank God they defeated Nazism. That had to be the paramount goal. I see that. But we should get on to the Hungarian Jews because I think it's the morally most vexed part of the story, which is the report did reach, as Rudy wanted desperately, it reached the Hungarian Jewish community. The de facto leader, Reju Kastner, was handed a copy. And for a whole variety of reasons, which I chart in the book, Kastner did not pass on that warning. What was Kastner's thinking and how do we know? Kastner's main thinking was he was in a dialogue and negotiation with Adolf Eichmann and the Nazis himself. Now, the question Historians will debate, and uh, is was he doing that to save the Jews of Hungary, or realistically, by the time he was having that negotiation, did he know he was only going to be allowed to save the number he did eventually save, which is 1,684 Jews who were put on the train that became known as the Kassner train, which included notables and friends and family of Reju Kassner, people from his hometown. Was he just looking out for himself because by then he knew? There was no hope for the Jews of Hungary. And was his price, or the price that the Nazis exacted from him, his silence? And very specifically, that he would agree to not distribute the Werber-Wetzler report and not warn the Jews of Hungary. And the evidence, I'm afraid, is pretty compelling against Kastner. So when we say, and when you
1: say in the book, that Rudolf Werber is is responsible for the saving of 200,000 Jews who were they who was saved and and how did the report do that
0: funnily enough this part of the story of the saving of 200,000 lives verbi himself hardly talked about that mm-hmm. he was obsessed i think with the ones he hadn't saved when he talked because of other people's and, and maintained a fury against casting to the end of it fury yeah. i mean uh unbridled um despite that once it was out there in the press those government leaders who had been able to be inactive without anyone knowing they weren't doing much were now shamed into action because it was now public. And so the Pope writes to the leader of Hungary, who, by the way, he has not written to before. I will say the Pius's
1: statement on this that was supposedly so brave doesn't even mention the word
0: Jew or Jewish. These unfortunate souls is what he says. I'll say. He doesn't say Jew and he doesn't let the note that he writes to Miklos Horty, the regent of Hungary, he doesn't let that note become public, which would have also made a difference.
1: Now, the horrible irony of all this is it's, it's, it's all the drama is happening too late. It's too for the late. Most part. It's, it's too, too late. late. The war's going to be, it, Auschwitz runs out of,
0: of, Jews to kill.
1: of Jews to kill. The war is over fairly soon thereafter.
0: But this is where we have to say this. 437,000 Jews have been killed from the Hungarian provinces. The last ones left are the 200,000 the Jews Budapest. of Budapest. When, because of Verber and Wetzler's report, the Pope and Roosevelt intervene, one train is on its way to Auschwitz, it literally turns around. Those are lives saved because of the Werber-Wetzler report. The 200,000 Jews of Budapest are spared deportation on the 6th of July, 1944, through a series of diplomatic moves that started with Werber and Wetzler's report, which is why I believe Rudolf Werber, together with Fred Wetzler, is responsible for the saving of 200,000 lives, which makes him a towering figure of the Second World War and the Holocaust. Not to make a comparison, this is not a numbers game, but everyone knows the name of Oskar Schindler, who is credited with 3,000 Jewish lives being saved. If it wasn't for Rudolf Weber and Fred Wetzler, there are 200,000 Jewish people who would never have lived... And their children, and their grandchildren, and and their their great-grandchildren. There are millions, perhaps, of people alive in the world today because of him. It's so
1: moving to me to read about the, as it were, the afterlife of Rudolf Weber in this book. He does not live easily in this world. He is tortured by his experiences, you would expect, and in very specific ways... His family life is not easy, particularly his first marriage. His relations with his kids are, is, is very difficult. And he is unable in any way to be what you and I would call diplomatic or polite. When he is asked about this subject, he doesn't go to a moral black and white. Germans over here, Jews, he's very critical of certain Jews, and this is particularly what got Hannah Arendt in trouble. Speak to that until the end of his days, his critique of certain
0: people in the Jewish community
1: and the way they behaved. It, it's very relevant. It's very actually, painful. To,
0: It's relevant to why he isn't as well known. I mean, I say in the book that I think his story should be as well known as Anne Frank, Primo Levi, Oscar Schindler. It's it's in that rank of story. of the but, but he's not, it, but you he's, know, in all due respect, Elie Wiesel, he does not comport himself no, like that. that's the explanation. So to, first to your point about his life, uh, uh, afterwards, it's quite true that the first marriage he, uh, he makes is not a good one. He makes a very good second marriage and lives very happily with her. And I'm not just saying that now because she is actually in the room with us tonight. Um, Robin Verber is here. Um, I, everywhere I've spoken about the, this book I've made that point that he and was able to be Robin has told me that he was able to be playful uh, you know enjoy practical jokes he could enjoy sitting in a restaurant in a cafe he wasn't somebody who couldn't live but yes he had had all those difficulties including those escapes that I talked about why wasn't he more famous is related to this point about him being an awkward difficult witness I found a a document, a letter, he wrote to a BBC TV producer who wanted him to come on a documentary. And he said, I must warn you, I am not the cliched Holocaust survivor. Meaning? Meaning, I'm not going to give you, and I now think this is what a lot of us want from Holocaust survivors, I'm not going to give you this healing, consoling wisdom uh, that says ultimately everyone is good and that we all did everything we could, we're on the side of good. I'm not going to serve up this comforting and pleasing narrative in which all evil resided in Hitler and the Nazis and everyone else was blameless. Instead, I'm going to tell you as I saw it. And that's not what people want to hear. A final question. We are
1: having this conversation in 2022. Very few Holocaust survivors are still alive. It will no longer be a matter of living memory very soon. And at the same time, We are having a historical reckoning on any number of other catastrophes of history, the slave trade uh, among them. And yet we still refer to the Holocaust as unique. How is it unique or is it not unique in your your sense of history? And why were you so driven, in in a sense, to, to write this particular story the singularity
0: of it, I think, remains even with all the horrors that we've witnessed since. And yet the, the, the two things that, to me, make the Holocaust unique are the, 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 the ambition to eradicate an entire people coupled with purpose-built, industrialised method. That, to me, is still the singular aspect of it. And the reason why I think it's of value why Jews are are right to insist on its singularity is because it is of use as a kind of moral terminus case. This is the ultimate case, and there is tremendous warning, cautionary power that we forego at our peril, I think. We need its its presence and urgency and sort of applicability to guide us even now. He understood the reason why these people were vulnerable to murder was because they didn't have knowledge. They'd been fed lies. This realisation that truth is all we have and it stands between us and tyranny. And he understood that as a teenage boy and was ready to risk absolutely everything for it.
1: Jonathan Friedland. His book about Rudolf Verbe is called The Escape Artist, the man who broke out of Auschwitz to warn the world. We spoke at a public event at the Museum of Jewish Heritage in New York. Rudolf Verbe died in 2006. You heard excerpts from an interview with him recorded by Claude Lanzmann during the filming of his documentary, Shoah. Those excerpts were used by permission of the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum. Next week with the World Cup about to begin, I'll talk with investigative journalist Heidi Blake, who's recently joined the New Yorker staff. She co-wrote a remarkable book called The Ugly Game. It's a deep look at how Qatar came to host the World Cup this year and all the corruption surrounding it. I hope you'll join us. The New Yorker Radio Hour is a co production of WNYC Studios and The New Yorker. Our theme music was composed and performed by Meryl Garbus of Toonyards, with additional music by Louis Mitchell. This episode was produced by Emily Botine, Brita Green, Kalalia, David Krasnow, Louis Mitchell, and Gofanin Imputubuele, along with Adam Howard, Jeffrey Masters, Will Coley, Jenny Lawton, and Michael May. And we had assistance from Harrison Keithline, Meher Bhatia, and James Napoli. Special thanks this week to Gabriel Sanders, Michael Costa and George Wellington. The New Yorker Radio Hour is supported in part by the Charina Endowment
0: Fund.